Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. We are currently living through a time of radical shifts in technology, ethics, secular ideologies, and religion. Our culture is increasingly shallow and lonely. Yet, rather than offering an alternative, the Big C Church often remains silent or compromised. In a time of compromise and disillusionment, God is calling his people to a movement of beautiful resistance. We invite you to join us as we walk through the final chapter of the Book of Romans and experience a renewed vision for who the church can be, replacing compromise with conviction. If you would like to visit and attend in person, we would love to have you. Go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. A reading from Romans 12, 1 through 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober, sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. The word of the Lord. Glad you are all here this morning. If you're in person, awesome. If you're watching at home, great. I welcome you. Uh, let's pray. Father, we want to acknowledge your presence in our midst this morning. <clears throat> we know your spirit is here. We pray that he would be at work in us uh, in a way that changes our hearts and our minds and thus our lives. Uh, use your word this morning. Uh, to challenge and convict and encourage us. And we pray that would happen as we look into it. We, we ask in Christ's name, amen. I'm gonna show you a quote and I want you to wrestle with it as to whether you agree or disagree. It's from a man named Dallas Willard, good theologian. He, he died a couple of years ago. But <clears throat> the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Do you agree or disagree? I don't know if it's the greatest issue, 
but it's got to be up there. And basically, Willard was convinced that if the people of God were transformed and then lived that transformation out in the world, it would change everything. Everything. Huge impact. Um, We are in a series called Beautiful Resistance. We're looking at Romans 12 through 16. And we're doing that because we agree with that quote. Uh, If we as a church can live transformed lives in the world out there, it will have a huge impact. But the question is, what does a transformed life look like? Last week, Paul kicked us off by looking at Romans 12, 1 and 2. And and that's where Paul gives us this challenge. He says, "In, in light of God's mercy, in light of what God has done, our response has to be to dedicate ourselves, commit ourselves, to to give our allegiance to God as a sacrifice. Living, we're not dead, holy, set apart for God, pleasing to Him. That's our, our, our reasonable response of worship or service, to dedicate our lives completely to God and live that out. And that begins this process of transformation of not being conformed to the world, but being transformed. And that happens by the renewing of our minds. Not not just information, but a different way of thinking, uh, truth being integrated into us in such a way that it changes our heart and, and changes our behavior. That's verses one and two. The rest of Romans 12 through 16 is really a description of what that transformed life is to look like. Beautiful resistance. Now, this is key, and I want you to grab a hold of it because it's really important. When Paul begins that discussion of what transformed living looks like, the very first thing he does is he talks about how we, the people of God, have to live transformed lives together in community. We may come into a relationship with Jesus individually. But once we've committed our lives to Jesus, we have to live that out corporately. That's so important that Paul begins there. It's absolutely critical. Listen to a quote by by Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee is a New Testament theologian. Wrote this great book, Paul and the Spirit of the People of God, looking at the work of the Holy Spirit. And he writes this. He says, God... And this is important because typically we miss this. In our faith, we've so individualized it in our culture that that we miss we're part of something bigger than that. God is not just saving individuals and preparing them for heaven. Rather, he is creating a people among whom he can live and who in their life together will reproduce God's life and character. Although entered individually, The church as a whole is the object of God's saving activity in Christ. God is choosing and saving a people for his name. In other words, God is all about creating his people, his community. And for us to live that out, we have to do life together. Okay, I have one more profound question for you. 
And I want you to share the answer to this with your neighbor. Ready? Who's going to win the game today? Share with your neighbor. You can... Because I'm going to tell you who's going to win. This is the definitive truth. You can bank on it. You can bet on it. You ready? The team that plays better. Right? We come to the Super Bowl and we make so much of the individuals. We think, you know, it's all going to matter whether Brady plays better or Mahomes plays better. Look, Tom Brady may be the GOAT. He may be the greatest of all time. And today, he may play the best game he's ever played. But that will not guarantee a win. I mean, if the people on his team, guys on his team don't block, if the receivers don't catch, if the running back doesn't hold on to the ball, if the kicker doesn't kick well, if the defense doesn't play defense, I don't care how well Brady plays, he will lose. Why? Because football is a team sport. Now, that doesn't mean he isn't critically important to the outcome of the game. He is maybe the most important player, but it's still a team sport. And he can play great, but if the, other, the rest of the team is horrendous, they will lose. Folks, the Christian life is a team sport. It's not just you and Jesus. You come to him individually, but you live that out corporately. corporately. And here's the thing. You will never become all God wants you to be unless you're an active participant in the body of Christ. In other words, unless you're involved in a church. Because that's the expression of the body of Christ. And, get this, the body of Christ, the church will never become all that God wants it to be unless you're an active participant in the church. Because we do life together. And, and Paul starts there when he begins to talk about the transformed life, what it looks like. We do life together. So in verses 3 through 8, which we're going to focus on this morning, he gives us three things that, that we need to grab a hold of and do if we want to do life together well. Okay? The first one is that we have to view ourselves correctly, accurately. Look, Romans 12:3. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, I find it fascinating that Paul is implying that, that how we relate to each other is, is going to be largely dependent on how we view ourselves. In other words, our self-concept is going to impact the quality of our relationships with others. If we don't like ourselves, it's going to be hard for us to believe that other people could like us. If we're insecure, then in relationships, we'll always be trying to win the approval of others and impress them so we can feel good about ourselves. If we think too highly of ourselves, think we're, we're, we're awesome, then we're likely to treat others poorly because we don't see them as, val as valuable as ourselves. How you think about yourself is going to determine how you relate to others. And Paul notes here that, look, 
we're typically not very objective about that. In, in other words, we get it wrong all the time. Well, on the one hand, lots of us think we're, we're better than we are. You know, uh, um, we, we have set a standard of achievement. We've met that achievement and we feel pretty good about ourselves. Or we had parents that told us we're special. You know, we got all the participation trophies. And we began to think that, wow, I'm awesome. And Paul says, mm, don't think like that. That's probably not true. Uh, some of us sitting here and at home are just not as great as we think we are. Some people think too highly. I, I think the uh, opposite end of the spectrum is true. So there are some people, on the other hand, who think too lowly of themselves. You know, they set that bar of achievement and they haven't measured up. And they just feel like failures. Let me tell you, just there are some of us here and at home who are far better than we can imagine. Uh, Paul says that we have to be sober when it comes to understanding ourselves, to view, the, the word for sober actually means rational or reasonable. In one place, it has the notion of a mental health. He's saying when it comes to viewing yourself, you, you have to view yourself in, in line with reality. So what you think of yourself corresponds to the truth, right? Talking about how you think. Question is, okay, I, I get that. I'm not to think too highly of myself. I'm going to have an accurate view of myself. How do I do that? How do I get an accurate view of who I really am? I want you to think about this. Where does our self-concept come from? I, I think for most people, I mean, there are some people who set that bar of achievement and then they measure themselves as whether they achieve it or fail it and, and they gauge from that. But I think there's actually something deeper. I think most of us take our self-concept from our perception of what we think other people think about us, right? We feel about ourselves as we perceive what we think other people think about us. And usually what matters most is those people who are important to us. Maybe it's our parents, maybe it's close friends, maybe it's our mentors, but whatever they think about us, we take that in and we begin to think that's, that's, that's what I'm like. And here's the truth. They're, more no, they're no more accurate about you than you are. <laughs> it's just a perception. And your perception of their perception may be off anyway. So how do you ever think rationally about yourself? Well, I think believers, followers of Jesus, have a unique resource that other people don't have. We have access to what I, I'd like to call kingdom thinking or gospel thinking. In this passage, Paul is saying, renew your mind, think differently. And one of the places you need to think differently is you, you need to think differently about you. And the only opinion that really matters that should dictate how you feel about it yourself is not other people, but God's. And in the gospel, we get a pretty clear understanding of what God thinks about us, right? What does God think about us? Well, on the one hand... God thinks we're pretty messed up, right? We're spiritual failures, we're broken, we're tainted by sin, we're corrupt in our hearts, our motives are suspect, our desires are off the mark. Is all that helping your self-image? 
Here's the thing, we know that's true, right? Because we know our hearts. And despite the image we present to others, we know what's going on in the inside of our lives in terms of our motives and our thinking and our desires. And at that point, we have to stand back and say, yeah, yeah, God, God nailed this. Nailed this. I, I messed up. Broken. But that's on the one hand. What else does God think about us? <laughs> on the other hand, God thinks we're so stinking valuable that he's willing to die for us. He, he thinks we have intrinsic, eternal value and are useful to fulfill his agenda of his kingdom in the world. We are never dying, ever living souls that he, he loves. Now how's your self-image? You see, if we can hold those two things in tension, that on the one hand we're spiritually messed up, but on the other hand we have infinite value and are precious because God loves us and died for us, we'll come to an accurate understanding of ourselves. And the better we understand ourselves, the better we'll relate to, to others. And that's beginning, the beginning of the foundation of doing life together. Second thing um, Paul tells us, not only must we view ourselves correctly, but we have to understand the body of Christ, the one and the many. All right? Look at verses 4 and 5. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. He's saying on the one hand, we're this unity, this oneness, but on the other hand, there's this incredible diversity. I was, uh, had my grandkids over yesterday, and they were playing with Mrs. Potato Head, and I thought, ah, that's the perfect illustration, right? Mrs. Potato Head is the bride of Christ. The one in the mini, right? If you, you've played with Mrs. Potato Head, she has all these, uh, she's all one, right? Like the body of Christ, we have a common uh, set of convictions and a common set of doctrine and a common allegiance to Jesus as king and a common set of values. That makes us one. But on the other hand, we're, we all are different, right? And, and Mrs. Potato Head has all these different parts that are unique and individual and different than all the others. The perfect illustration. On the one hand, Mrs. Potato Head is a great illustration on the other hand, it's a horrible illustration. Do you know why? Because with Miss Potato Head, uh, if I take off the nose or if I take off the, the eyes, eh, no big deal. Why? Because the eyes and the nose, they're self-contained. They're autonomous. They do fine just on their own. I can set them over here and they're happy. And Miss Potato Head doesn't care anyway. Right? That is not like the body of Christ. When Paul's thinking of a metaphor or an illustration, he doesn't use something that has pieces that are self-contained. He uses the human body. And he, and he says this, we belong to each other. In fact, in the New American Standard Version, it says we are individually members of one another. And he uses the illustration of a human body. And the parts of a human body are not self-contained, autonomous entities. They're interconnected. 
And if I whack off my thumb and set it over here, it doesn't do so well. And either does my hand or my body. We're connected. My wife is an anaplastologist. She makes small body, body parts, or, or did, eyes, noses, ears, uh, fingers for people who have lost theirs. And she will tell you that when somebody loses a piece of their body, it's a big deal. And it doesn't simply have to do with aesthetics. It has to do with function. If you lose an eye and you don't get something to put into the socket to replace it, your face will begin to cave in on that side. Here's the point. We're the body. And we're interconnected. And we're interconnected in some mystical, metaphysical way that we're not individual automatons uh, that are, are... uh, can be autonomous and self-sufficient on our own. It doesn't work that way. In the body of Christ, when I'm hurting, you should be hurting. And when you're hurting, I should be hurting. Uh, because we're in this together. We're, we're mystically linked together. We, we have this notion that, that we can do, do, do life on our own. It's just Jesus and me. And I want to tell you, folks, that is not Jesus' vision for you or for his church. It's just not. It's not just about you and him. It's about us together becoming what God wants us to be and us being transformed as we think differently and understand differently who we are and how we function in the body. So he says, you know, view yourselves differently. Understand the one and many. Understand the nature of the body of Christ. And three, play your part. And, and play it well. Romans 12, 6 through 8. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Um, the word here for gift is the word charisma. It's where we get our word charismatic. Uh, that's the source of the word charismatic, which we use to refer to to gifts of the spirit but actually that word charisma comes from the greek word charos which means grace and uh, it's just the normal everyday word for gift and it's based on the notion of grace because a gift is not something you've earned it's something that's given to you And, and paul is making the point that in the body that is one, that's interconnected, there are unique and different gifts. And we're supposed to use those gifts. Now, I think we've analyzed the gifts way too much and utilized them way too little. Okay? I think if you begin to study the gifts, uh, um, that one, none of the, the lists where we find the gifts of the Spirit, whether in 1 Corinthians or here or another place in the New Testament, none of those lists are complete or exhaustive. 
Uh, um, in all those lists, Paul is just using examples to make his, his, his point. And get this, I don't think that if you put all the gifts together, um, you can come up with a complete list. Because how would you know if Paul only picks these and these and these? How do you know he didn't leave others out? In fact, I happen to believe that there are hundreds, hundreds of spiritual gifts that God gives. Oh, you say, well, I don't know about that. Well, look in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 31. Uh, interesting, they're building the tabernacle, right? And, and God says there, well, I've given certain men the Spirit of God to be craftsmen, to work on the temple. Uh, to be excellent when it comes to figuring out how to make gold into bowls and lampstands. And I've given some the ability to weave uh, uh, incredible, incredible walls of carpet. And I've given uh, some people the ability to carve wood. And I've given some people the ability to lay things. And all of them are, are gifts, but none of our lists have the gift of artist or the gift of craftsman or the gift of mechanic or the gift of... <laughs> none of them. I just think there's hundreds of gifts. And I, I think what we've done is we've come in and kind of taken these out of their context, categorized them. Uh, um, and I think if Paul saw what we were doing with the gifts, he would roll over in his grave. Okay. You may disagree with me, that's, that's okay. I know, I know this isn't what you typically hear about spiritual gifts. But let, let me give you a definition of spiritual gifts and then some pastoral, some pastoral advice, okay? And you can wrestle with it. Here's, I, I think this is a good definition. A spiritual gift is an ability, natural or supernatural. In, in other words, I, I, I think leadership is a natural gift or being a craftsman is a natural gift. I think the gift of healing and miracles, probably supernatural, okay? But he, both can be spiritual gifts. They can be permanent. You, you've had it in the past or you, you got it when you became a believer, but it, it's, it's just how you're wired and how God made you. Or it can be temporary. In the Old Testament, at one point, Saul, who was the king of Israel, joins the prophets and he begins to prophesy. And Paul, Saul doesn't have typically the, the spiritual gift a prophecy, but for that moment he did, because God was doing, doing something unique, permanent or spiritual. But here's the key, it's given by God. And whether it's given as, as part of your makeup as, as a person when you're born, or it's given at conversion, or it's given at some point later, it, I don't think it's relevant. It, ultimately, he's the source, it's a, 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 an undeserved gift. Okay, given by God. But here's, here's the key. It's empowered by the Spirit and used to further his kingdom, either in the church or the world. In other words, when it comes to the gifts, it's not the nature of the gift that matters. It's the, the power behind the gift and the purpose of the gift that really is at issue. And whether it's natural or supernatural, if God's empowering it, and using it for his purposes and his kingdom, that's a gift. And at that point, he's saying, you, you're, you're giving a part to play in the body. You're gifted. Play that part well. That's his point. 
So let me give you some pastoral advice, okay? Number one, you are gifted. There are no exceptions. Uh, um, some of you don't feel like you're gifted. Some of you don't know what your, your gift is. I'm not sure that matters. But, but you are gifted. And the challenge here is you just need to engage to use your gift. If you have this notion that you're not gifted, I have a word from God for you. Ready? You're wrong. God's word to you today. You are gifted. Because when you're part of the body of Christ, you're there and you're unique and gifted to accomplish God's purposes. You just need to engage. With the gift comes responsibility. In other words, you have to use the gift. You have to engage and you have to participate. The New Testament and Jesus doesn't know of anybody being, being a spectator in his body. It's <laughs> the Christian life is not a spectator sport. You're not here simply to be entertained. You're here to be transformed so that you can engage either in the church or in the world to further God's kingdom. It's active, and you have to participate. Nobody has the, uh, the privilege of just sitting on the bench. Third, don't worry about labeling and finding and categorizing your gift. I know we've come up with all these spiritual gift tests, right? Have you ever thought about the notion that for the first 1900 years of the church, they didn't have a spiritual gift test? How in the world did they do it? And they just, they, they did fine. Because the issue isn't the label or the category or the test or what the test says. Um, <laughs> put all that aside. Here's what you do. You don't find your gift. It will find you. You just have to get engaged and try different things. And see what the impact is. And look at, look at what you feel competent doing. Look at the impact you have. Look at what God blesses. Listen to the feedback. I think it's really important for us to call out what, how we see other people gifted. And if you do that and you just pay attention, you'll gravitate to your niche where you're really effective and really good. And it fits your personality and your mix and your strengths. That's just what happens. And pay attention. If you think you have the gift of teaching and you bore people to death, that's not your gift. If you think you have the gift of, of leading and nobody's following you, not your gift. Okay, just get engaged and see what God does. We'll find you. And don't feel bad if your gift doesn't fit the list. The list were just examples. I, I mean... I mean there are all kinds of spiritual gifts that aren't on the list. Uh, um, and you need to embrace that. And who cares whether you can label it? I'm going to give you some examples in a minute of people serving all around Waterstone. I don't know what their gifts are, but they're, they're engaged and they're empowered by the Spirit and they're making a difference for the kingdom. Some things are not just gifts, but duties. I think people come to this list and say, oh, giving is a gift. Well, it is. If you're passionate about giving, it comes easy to you, you make a lot of money, it's easier for you to be generous. Yeah, that's probably one of your gifts. We see that and say, oh, I don't have the gift of giving. I don't have to do that. Wrong. It's 
It's another word from God for you today. It's a responsibility. All of us have to give. It may be much more of a struggle. It may be not our natural bent. It may not be our natural gift. We may not be good with finance. Who cares? But we still have this responsibility to give. You know, it's just like working in the nursery. Well, little kids are not my gift. I don't care. We need a body in the nursery. And do it well. You know, a gift can be temporary. You can handle an hour. You really can. It's responsibility and duty. And this last one, your gift is for the kingdom. It is not for you. You know, after 30 years of ministry, I've had people saying, well, they complain because we're not recognizing their gift. We're not giving them their position where they want to have influence in there. They're bent out of shape because I can't use my gift. And I'm thinking, it's not about you. It's about the kingdom and what God is doing. And maybe God wants you to function in a different way now. The gifts were never given to, to stroke our egos, to give us a a sense of importance to make us feel good about ourselves. They're not given for our prestige. They're giving so that we can serve the body and the purpose of Christ in the world. It has nothing to do with us. So if you're bent out of shape because you can't use your gift, do something else. Start thinking differently. Renew your mind. It's okay. It's not about, about you. You know, Paul just gave an example uh, of, of different kind of gifts. I thought it might be good for us to hear uh, some of the different gifts that are taking place. These are people in our body who, who are serving that you never see or hear about, but they're using their gifts. Kenneth Black and Stacy Persichetti, they serve in the food pantry. They feed families every week. Marla Ketter and Michelle Fye and Carol Osborne, they volunteer at the front desk during the week. You don't know anything about them, but they greet people as they come. Glenn Arnold and Mike Schmidt, they stand at the back door and say, Glenn was back there this morning welcoming you as you, you, you came in. Lindy Musgrave and Dave Seisberger mentor our middle, middle school students every Wednesday and put, put up with them as they wreak havoc. havoc. That's a gift. To be able to deal with junior high kids. Think of Janice Shannon, who heads our prayer team, and she's helped by Carrie Leon, Amy Coddington, Linda Sukup. Behind the scenes. Jared Albers and Matt Dowdy, they teach small groups to sophomores each week. Josh Bregg does men's ministry. Melissa Fuller oversees our women's ministry. Kay Suzuki and Shauna Kaiser. They oversee mops, run mops, mothers of preschoolers. Denise Chang, who started CHAN, which is Colorado Hosting Asylum Network. You know, I don't know how to categorize all their gifts and, and label all their gifts, but I do know all these people are using their skills, their gifts. They're empowered by the Spirit to accomplish God's purpose in the church and in the world, and they're playing their part well. Now, if you want some help figuring a place that you can engage, we're going to put Madison's, cat, 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 uh, Madison's uh, email up here. She was the gal who opened the service. And she helps people connect different places. So, so contact her, send her an email. Uh, she'll help you.
Um, here's the point. Understand yourself. Understand the body. Figure out you are gifted as part of the people of God. You just have to play your part well. That's Paul's point. And, and, and when you get to the heart of it, it's really not about the gifts. It's about the heart. That's why I love the image we have for this series, Beautiful Resistance. Because that's Jesus washing the disciples' feet. I don't think Jesus had the gift of feet washing. But Jesus did have a heart of service. And he saw a need and he engaged. Just look around. See the need and engage. Can I get you to stand? We're going to close uh, by reading together a confession. Would you just join me as we read this together? We believe in God whose goodness is more than enough for all, filling the universe with gifts of love and resounding through our lives in praise. We take hold of all that God gives with reverence and joy. We believe in Christ Jesus, God's greatest gift of all, who takes the smallest of seeds, a mere whisper of faith, and brings forth a harvest of good things. We will take all that Christ has given us, our gifts, our talents, our very selves, so that Christ can walk our streets once more. We believe in God's spirit of truth, bringing to fruition all that has been given, gentle as a breeze or shocking as a storm. We will allow God's gifts to be stirred to life in us. We will now go into the world strengthened by the gifts with which Christ has given us. We go in peace to love and serve in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.